Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive by the Spirit. And we pray that you would speak into our souls, our hearts, from this portion of Scripture today. And Lord, if we're not yet Christians and listening in, we pray that we would take one step more towards understanding or today to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. For his sake we pray. Amen. Now we've been working through the section in Mark's Gospel that runs from chapter 8 verse 31 to chapter 10 verse 52. And that means we'll finish this section, God willing, next Sunday with the accounts of Jesus healing the blind beggar Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus is presented to us in Mark's Gospel as one of the model disciples. Now, the theme of the extended section, Mark 8, 31 to 10, 52, and uh, my uh, prayer is that this Sunday and next we'll uh, not only focus on the passages in front of us, but just get a feel of the whole section of Mark as we come to the end of it. The theme of the section, 831 to 1052, is, and here's a title for it, Suffering Service for Jesus and His Followers. That's how I'd entitle the section as a whole, Suffering Service for Jesus and His Followers. Now, in our passage today and throughout the section, there is a focus on suffering service for Jesus. Suffering service for Jesus and his followers, but let's consider first suffering service for Jesus. Three times in the big unit, 831 to 1052, Jesus speaks about his forthcoming death and resurrection. The first occasion, 831 to 33. Second, 930 to 32. And third, in our passage, 10.32 to 34. Now, it's very important that we understand that in these three uh, important statements, Jesus is not simply predicting his death and resurrection in the sense that it will happen. He is saying that, but not simply that. Indeed, he is saying much more than that. What Jesus is doing is impressing on the disciples and all who will follow him is that he must suffer in order for there to be glory of the resurrection. In other words, Jesus' death and resurrection or his suffering and glory are not simply sequential events. They are integrated, they are causal, if you like, the suffering and death of Jesus leads to uh, glory. Or the suffering and death of Jesus leads many to glory. Now let's just reprise or look at these three important statements uh, again to get them fresh back in our mind. Just turn back to Mark 8, 31 to 33. Mark 8, 31, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer. And then he goes on to say that after three days he will rise again. The disciples do not understand at this stage. 
They do not understand. They do not accept that Jesus must suffer and die before being raised. Second, just flip over to Mark 9, 30 to 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, look, let me tell you this again, the second time, nearly word for word, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand. And then the third time in our focus passage today, Mark 10, 32 to 34, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, the road that would take him to the place where he would die, and Jesus was ahead of them. Physically, the disciples in the crowd are behind him, physically, behind him in understanding, in acceptance. They're afraid, perplexed, and taking the twelve again for the third time, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now Jesus must suffer and die before he is raised from the dead. Jesus must suffer and die for there to be glory. You see what Mark is saying, and he says it three times, and we need to hear it this morning as the third time that it is through the suffering and death of Jesus that the salvation of humanity and the glory of resurrection to everlasting life is achieved. It is the suffering and death of Jesus that saves, that achieves salvation. And Jesus' suffering is Jesus serving. The fact that he goes willingly to the cross is the supreme example of serving others in all of human history. Now Mark 10:45, the end of our passage, many regard as the key verse in Mark's gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but a servant to give his life as a ransom for many. For even... It is hard to comprehend the Son of Man, the most common title Jesus uses for himself in Mark's Gospel. Taken from Daniel 7, it is the title God gives to the King of God's eternal kingdom. The Son of Man is both a human king and a divine king, man and God. The only one who can wear that crown is Jesus, and this King Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give and not to take. What did he come to give? 
What did Jesus, the eternal Son of God, come to earth as a man to give his life as a ransom for many? His life given on the cross as the ransom price to set us free, to forgive us. Suffering service for Jesus, that is what characterized his life on earth. Suffering service for Jesus is how salvation was achieved, how God's purposes to save humanity was achieved. Now, Jesus' suffering service comes first. It comes first in every passage. It comes before the stuff on what following him is like. It comes first in the sense that his life is the example we are to follow. It is comforting and inspiring that he does not ask of us anything he did not do himself. But Jesus' life of suffering service is not simply to be understood in terms of an example we are to follow. It is the life he births within a Christian in the person of his spirit. Supernaturally, we are born again to a life of suffering service like Jesus in order that we might participate in the advancement of his kingdom on the earth. Now, let me just pause for a little uh, time out. This is not to say that the Christian does not experience some degree of glory now in this life. We do. Our experience of glory is real, and it is rich. We experience, for example, the glorious revelation of truth, of how things are, who God is, who we are, the world in which we live in eternity. We do not wake up in the morning confused about our destiny, the state of the world. Truth is revealed to the Christian by the Spirit of God. Our eyes have been opened to see and to understand, and that is glorious. We experience the glorious assurance of our salvation, complete forgiveness, our eternal destiny secure. We experience the glorious privileges of adoption as children of God. We experience an intimate, dependent relationship with our Heavenly Father. We can speak to Him at any time. We can listen to Him at any time through His Word that is made alive in our minds and hearts by His Spirit. In the words of Peter, 
Adam was quoting from 1 Peter, and I'm quoting from 1 Peter a couple of times. Though you have not seen Jesus, just hear these words if you are a Christian. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so as Christians, we do experience some degree of glory now in this life. But our experience as Christians in this life, life on earth, is predominantly one of suffering service. For that is how, in this world, the kingdom of God advances. Now, is it right to say that the predominant pattern in this life for the Christian, and we might also say the Christian church, is suffering service? Now, Mark says to us, it is. Turn back to chapter 8, to the first description of Jesus' suffering, then glory. Remember that first description of his own suffering, then glory, is 831 to 33. Look what immediately follows that statement. A vitally important statement from the Lord Jesus this is how the Lord Jesus introduces what is the key section in Mark's gospel on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Mark 8, 34. It's the first thing he says about what the life of following Jesus is. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples. In other words, every follower, not just the disciples or the apostles or the leaders, he said to them, if anyone, double underscore, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To deny self means a life of service, not to be served but to serve. To take up your cross means a life of suffering, suffering service. It is very clear what Jesus says, it is for all who follow him. Now, that is a radical teaching from Jesus, then and now. So much so that Jesus took Peter, James, and John, three of his closest disciples, up a mountain where he was transfigured before them. They saw his glory. They saw the Son of Man in his glory. They saw what Daniel saw in his vision, the coronation of the Son of Man as the King of God's everlasting kingdom. And as they looked at the glory of Jesus, the voice from God broke in on the mountain, this is my beloved Son, listen to him, listen to what he is saying to you. That his life on earth is suffering service, then glory and that our life as his followers on earth is suffering service, then glory. 
The Apostle Peter, it seems, was profoundly influenced by this experience, at least his later reflection on it. His letters, 1 and 2 Peter, focus very much on suffering now, glory to come. Listen to these words just after the words that Adam quoted. This is 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted, for the name of Christ you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so Mark, and I hope you see this, is very, very clear in this section that Jesus' life on earth is characterized by suffering service. He never takes. He only gives. And our life on earth as his followers is to be characterized by suffering service. And that's what Mark has been teaching us through the words of Jesus in these chapters. And from chapter 9, verse 33 to 1045, there are a number of illustrations of what a life of suffering service looks like for the Christian and, for that matter, the Christian church, a local church like Chalmers. It is not an exclusive list of what suffering service looks like. But we must assume that these examples were chosen because they were and are key issues in the life of Christians then and now, in the life of the church then and now. Here's the list. You can recall over these weeks, we are to be the last of all and the servant of all. We are to beware a critical spirit that puts others down. We are to be ruthless in a battle with sin. We are to be committed to marriage. We are to be dependent on Jesus like little children. We are to be devoted to Jesus, willing to give up everything for him and not to count the cost. Why? Because that is the way to live that will advance the kingdom of Jesus. Just think of that list in terms of a local church like Chalmers. Think of the, the key lessons from Mark 8, 9, and 10. And this is there. These marks are there. And lockdown, and coronavirus, and the enormous challenges that brings reveals them to be there. Right through the church family, the mindset that each of us is to be the very last and the servant of all, putting others first, serving others, 
not to the point that it exhausts us. We all need time out, perspective and rest. But the orientation of the Christian, the orientation of a member of a church family is to serve, to give, not to take. Moreover, and how much more than normal lockdown emphasizes this or would expose this if it were there, the absence of a critical spirit and instead an encouraging spirit, a desire to build up one another. It strikes me that during these past three months, the stuff that used to irk us, irks us less. Serious about sin. Encouraging one another to grow in godliness. Being accountable to one another. Chalmers is a church family that is serious about sin and perhaps even more so in these months. A church family of Christians who are committed to marriage, supporting one another in this area of life, praying for protecting the marriages in the church family, a church family that is corporately and individually dependent on Jesus, a church full of children, a church full of people who love bite size. Because we never, ever grow tired as Christians of simple truths to feed on. Childlike trust. A church that is devoted to Jesus, willing to give up all for him and not to count the cost. And all of that grows a local church into one that is united, transformed, a loving community of faith that is a lifeline to many, many people and a church that holds out the word of life in the gospel. It's such a powerful list. It's an inspired list. It's a description of the right stuff that intuitively we know is right. And these marks are evident and increasingly in so in the life of Chalmers. In some way, lockdown proves the tested genuineness of real faith, of real church, while at the same time making us long with all our hearts for the ability to all be in this building again, together. Now, in Mark 10, 32 to 45, we come to the last description of what following Jesus looks like. And really, it is a summary simply of the key principles of suffering service for followers of Jesus. Mark keeps repeating himself, is to burn these truths into our hearts. 
Looking at the verses as a unit, 32 to 45, note that the description of Jesus' suffering begins, verse 32 to 34, and ends, verse 45, the unit. We have Jesus' example at the beginning and the end. Wherever we look, we have Jesus' example. That's always the right framework to consider the teaching in the middle. The episode begins with James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples. Along with Peter, it was James and John. Jesus took up the mountain where he was transfigured and revealed his glory. Notice Mark refers to them as James and John, the sons of Zebedee. That's a small detail, but it's a long time since Jesus referred to them as the sons of Zebedee, or as Mark did. Right back at the beginning, they were referred to as that. Maybe a signal from Mark that they have not really moved on in their understanding. Anyway, they come to Jesus, and uh, you've got to feel the shock of their question off the back of all that uh, Jesus has been saying to them. Immediately, that I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That uh, is not a great start to the conversation. And he said to them, I mean, let's just pause and cut them their due. It's exactly the kind of question that often we would ask, not out loud. Here's James and John, two of the great apostles of the early church, exposed in their hearts for all time. Teacher, we want you to do what we want. That's what they're saying. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And the plain reading of this is the right reading. They want places of honor, status, and privilege. And presumably, they see themselves as deserving of this. Jesus said to them, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. You don't understand what you're asking, but is there perhaps a poignant note in Jesus' response? You don't know what you're asking, but one day you will. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? The cup and the baptism refers to Jesus' suffering and death. Jesus' suffering and death is unique in its awfulness and significance, but the pattern of suffering service is not unique to Jesus. It is to characterize the life of all his followers, as we know from Mark at this point. And they said to him, verse 39, we are able. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them or correct them. He says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. In other words, you will suffer for my sake and the gospel. And they did. And they did willingly. James lost his life in the end. 
martyred, John exiled to the island of Patmos. Jesus says, you will suffer. And he doesn't say it harshly. He doesn't rebuke them. Jesus is reconciled in his heart. He knows he must die for them to enable them to see. You will suffer, he says to them, but then he turns to serving. The Christian life, remember, is about suffering and serving. And here he responds to the specific question he asked, but to sit at my right hand, verse 40, or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus will not presume to answer their question. That in itself indicates his humility before his father. Now, the rest of the disciples' reaction is perhaps less godly, but entirely understandable. Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant, angry at James and John. No wonder. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, that's a signal when Mark records Jesus called to them and said to them, it is serious what he is about to say. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. What Jesus is talking about here is leadership as it is seen and regarded in the world. Lording it over and exercising authority. I don't think Jesus is condemning Leadership as it is seen, regarded, and exercised in the world or saying it is wrong. I think what he is saying is that for Christians, there is a fundamental principle with respect to their attitude to self and others that impacts the way they exercise leadership. For Christians who have leadership roles in the world, and by that I mean the non-Christian world that most of you are working in, and many of you are leaders in, there is a tension. You need to work within the structures, the world's view of leadership. But you do so as a Christian, with a selflessness, with an attitude to give and not take, with a desire to serve others. And that is powerful when it is lived out in the world but difficult. But that's not Mark's primary focus here or Jesus. What Jesus' primary focus here is, is on how Christians see one another in the church, in a local church like Chalmers, and perhaps in particular to those who have a leadership role, whether as an elder, a small group leader, or a children and youth leader. Within the church, leadership is to be very different. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exerciseth, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Jesus is not saying that there is no place for leadership in the church. Clearly, he is not. After all, these are his designate apostles he is speaking to. James and John and the others had very significant leadership roles. Moreover, Jesus is not saying that elders in a local church are not to lead. 
or that some of their number be set apart full-time to give an overall lead, what we would call ministers. Nor is he saying that through the life of a local church, different men and women are not to be given leadership responsibility. So if he is not saying that, for that would contradict the rest of the New Testament, what is he saying? He is saying this, that the Christian leader is to be a servant leader, to be a giver, not a taker, to be a slave. That's the word he uses. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave. It shall not be so. It shall not be so a worldly attitude to leadership among you. It shall not be so among you as elders of Chalmers that any one of you should have aspirations to lord it over the others. You are to be their servant. You must serve them, not rule them. You must give to them, not take from them. What does that mean? It means loving and listening Bearing with one another, encouraging, working hard if need be to relieve others, taking responsibility, sharing responsibility. As a body of elders together, do not lord it over the church family. Be their servant. Give to them. Do not take from them. Deny self for their sake. Love them selflessly. Give of your time to teach them Jesus' word and shepherd them. Leaders of different ministries, areas of church life, that same attitude to one another. Do not lord it over others. Serve them, shepherd them, care for one another. Something we are keen to do as elders across a whole range of ministries, we'll talk about this on the 15th, is to develop teams. A team committed to a particular area of ministry, rather than lots of people serving on a rota. Think of a team, whether it's Big Night In or Impact or Catering. What does leadership look like in a team? Leaders who serve, not lorded over others. Leaders who step in when others are struggling. And that builds a team that is selflessly committed to one another. And the same is true of a small group. Servant leadership builds a group that serves and loves one another. And when this attitude pervades a church family, it is such a powerful thing in the right sense a selfless, servant, heartitude, attitude to others, not about what I can take, but what I can give. And perhaps the people who need to heed and hear this the most are ministers of churches, people set apart to full-time leadership roles, people who take an overall lead. There's nothing wrong with that. It is biblical. What is wrong is how leadership is exercised. Christian leaders like Christ are not to be served, but to serve and to be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Think of all the gospel churches in Edinburgh and their church leaders. If there is rivalry and ambition between them, there is no gospel partnership, and therein there is no fruitfulness. 
if there is tribalism or partisanship, but it shall not be so among you, Jesus says. Thank God that attitude of serving and giving is increasingly prevalent amongst gospel leaders in Scotland, and what a difference it, God willing, God willing is making. Now, as we come to a close, um, isn't it striking that Mark begins and ends his description practically of what suffering service looks like for Christians and for churches. What was the first issue he focused on back in chapter 9, verses 33 to 37? Rivalry and ambition. And what did he say to the disciples then? If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. What does he end his description with here in chapter 10? Rivalry and ambition. Once again, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. What does he say to them? Whoever would be first must be the last. The two bookends of Mark's description of the character of the Christian, the two bookends of Mark's description of the character of the Christian church, it shall not be so among you, rivalry and ambition, in its place, give. And do not take, serve, and do not wait to be served. Now, the last word to Jesus, not because that's a good way to end a sermon, though it will be, but because it is the way that Mark ends his sermon. Let me read it from the second last verse, 44. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And now the final word, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom uh, from many. The call to suffering service comes from whom? From Jesus, who does not ask of us to do anything he has not first done himself, and who, loving Savior and Shepherd that he is, births in us through his indwelling spirit, supernatural capacity to live a life that gives, not takes, that serves, does not wait to be served, and that is willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It is a demanding life, but it is a purposeful life. It is a good life. It is a fruitful life. It is an obedient life. Peter was spot on in his letter when he said, in the toughest of times, or when you are giving and not taking, when you are serving and not waiting to be served, when you are suffering for the sake of the gospel's progress, the glory of God like a weight rests upon you. Wonderfully, James and John and the others came to a clear understanding and a life given in devoted following of Jesus. May that be true of each of us individually and as a church family. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderfully practical teaching on the call to suffering service, 
for the sake of others, not a call to a life that is restrictive or a life that is fruitless. A hard life, yes, but a good life, a great way to live, a life of giving, not taking, a life of selflessness. Help us, Lord, to relish that where it is evident within our church family and to allow it to flow out more and more and more, especially in these days where you are proving to us the tested genuineness of faith. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.